Good morning, everyone, and welcome to PRIO, and welcome to this seminar on what shapes refugee journeys. This seminar is organized by the PRIO Migration Center, together with the project Geographies of Conflict-Induced Migration. My name is Marta Bevan Adal, and I'm a research professor here and a co-director of the Migration Center, and I'll be moderating this seminar, and we have a lot of exciting content, so I'm going to keep this very brief. But I've been asked to tell you two practical things. So first of all, we need to turn off our Bluetooth on our phones, because otherwise it might interfere with the sound system. So first, <laughs> first things first, let's just get that done. And while you do that, um, I'm talking about the sound systems because we're, we are recording this seminar. So it's not being live streamed or anything, but we are recording it. And we'll be sharing the recording as a podcast on the PRIO web pages. This also means that uh, when we get to the Q&A, we'll ask you to speak in a microphone uh, for recording purposes, even if in, in this room we might be able to hear each other. Then you know why. Which also means that uh, when you are asking questions, you'll know that you're being recorded. So you can choose then whether you'd like to ask a question or not. But we hope you will, of course. Okay, so I hope everyone has turned off their Bluetooth on their phones by now. Uh, and then I'll just proceed briefly to tell you what we're expecting today. So we'll start off with a presentation this morning from the CONMEG project, uh, where my colleagues Andreas, Katrina, and Marianne will be presenting some research that we've done, which speaks to the title of this seminar. Thereafter, we've collected a very competent group of commentators uh, who are researchers and practitioners, who will be then offering their perspectives and reflections on the question of what shapes refugee journeys, both in the specific context that we're focusing on, which is the context of South Sudanese refugees in Uganda, but also trying to take a more broad perspective towards the end before we come to the Q&A. So I'll introduce the speakers when we get that far, uh, but for now I'd like to pass the floor to my colleagues. Thank you, Marta. All right. So uh, we want to present a paper that we're currently working on where we ask this question, what shapes refugee journeys? And uh, the reason we asked oh yeah and this is what uh, so you know what we're doing in the presentation i'll talk a bit about what the study is about the methods we've used and then my colleagues andreas and marana will talk a bit about our results before uh, giving you some conclusions so yes the reason we asked this question in the beginning is that there is a lot of research on uh, migration journeys and refugee journeys but most of it focuses on refugee journeys towards the global north uh, also uh, looking more upon challenges faced underway there and not so much uh, what they face and how, what kind of experiences they have in the global south. In addition, there is uh, a lot of research in the re refugee journey literature focusing on post-migration experiences and how to resolve issues of protected displacement, uh, where there's also a bit, a, a bit of focus on agency and how refugees themselves shape their current uh, situation. But this has not been so much of a focus in the refugee journeys literature. It's really looking at what is happening during the journeys, what kind of structures are in place that shapes where refugees travel and how they travel, and also how do the refugees themselves adhere to that, react to that, respond to that. So given this, we were interested in looking upon this in our study where we look at, uh, in this paper, the initial 
a refugee journey, taking these refugees from South Sudan to Uganda. And in the study, we highlight various different factors that we see as shaping their journeys. You will hear more about them. Uh, but we also uh, find interesting results in terms of how, what shape their, their options, but also how they adhere of those structures available to them, and also what exposes their vulnerabilities, um, and uh, how this again affects the journey trajectories. So this led us to the study, where the, which is called Refugee Journey Infrastructures, Exploring Migration Trajectories from South Sudan to Uganda. And we ask two specific questions. First, what do refugees' initial journeys within and out of conflict settings look like? So in terms of the geographies, where do they go, how long do they stay there, and so on. And secondly, what shapes these journeys and the trajectories that we find? So this draws on um, the project, as Marta introduced briefly, CONMEG it's called, where we have been looking at uh, migration trajectories, refugee migration trajectories in conflict settings, uh, trying to understand how different forms of violence and the intensity of those affects journeys, uh, including the decision-making, the traveling, and also post-life, post-migration. Uh, it's based on a survey uh, in two settlements in Reno refugee camp in northern Uganda, where we had face-to-face -face, uh, survey interviews with 1,008 uh, refugees. So this uh, is also a pretty innovative survey in the sense that we mix three different methods. It's a standard survey questionnaire with questions you ask and you have to state, uh, give a specific answer. But we also have open questions, so where we ask the refugees to uh, to speak more freely, for instance, about the journeys and the choices they had made underway. And in addition, we had this mapping component uh, where we brought a table or the enumerators, the local team that we worked with here, uh, brought the tablet and the refugees were given the chance of either explaining where they had gone or putting it up the map themselves or the enumerators. So those doing the interviews support them with those. That, And at the same time, we recorded what was being said so we could hear what they had happened or what they had experienced at the different places they had gone through. So uh, based on this, we took it together and digitalized it using GIS software. And now we have uh, yeah, interesting results to tell you on their trajectories. Thank you, Katrina. So, uh, um, one of the first key questions that uh, Katrina um, listed was, uh, what does uh, refugee journeys look like? And uh, using this mapping exercise, we, uh, um, we mapped all the 1,008 routes that we collected from this tablet exercise. So, in total, we had uh, all the routes combined into one uh, map. So. The map basically shows all the individual routes uh, that we collected using the tablet. <coughs> uh, so the darker colors suggest that more people have traveled along those axes uh, and, and, and routes. So uh, what is important to, to uh, highlight is that this is, of course, just one snapshot uh, of uh, one single case of refugee journeys uh, from South Sudan to Uganda. Um, but at, again, it, it suggests that, that we have a 
big heterogeneous group or uh, mix of routes, both when it comes to where people have traveled from, their origins, uh, the nodes that they have traveled through, and also uh, where they have crossed the borders into Uganda. Uh, so <coughs> it is a very heterogene heterogeneous, um, provides a very heterogeneous picture, a, a great insight into the variety of, of the journeys and the routes that people have taken to go from, from South Sudan to, to Uganda. So this uh, inset map here shows, uh, zooms in to show more of the variation uh, in terms of, of routes. And you can, uh, if you watch it a bit closely, you can see the, the nodes that were important for people to travel through. So this shows us what the refugee journeys look like, but what can we use these for? And how can we combine these with uh, uh, the qualitative interviews, the surveys, and so on? So if we just look very on the descriptive statistics, we see that uh, the average journey length that we collected was 389 kilometers. So we can compare this to the straight line distance from Yuba to Rhino Camp, which is uh, 208 kilometers or 346 kilometers by road. And on average, uh, the routes that we uh, collected were uh, people traveled through five and a half places, 5.5. So what is important to, to highlight also with this map is that this also reflects all the people's recollection, right? What they recollected when at the point of the interview, uh, the map skills, but also uh, the quality of the reference maps we used in the tablets to um, find their locations that they traveled from and also traveled through. So now Marianne will uh, give you uh, some descriptive statistics on, uh, on the actual routes, and then I'll come back and talk more about the conflict experiences. Thank you. So first, uh, we will look at um, sorry. Uh, planning and changing the route. So 61% of the respondents, they answered that they did not at all have a planned route to get to Uganda. Uh, and 23% of them also answered that they had to change the route on their way. And 60% out of these put violent conflict as the main factor for changing the route. And the other reasons were access to food, information, and transport. And when it comes to navigation, we found that only 12% uh, used a map during their journey. But uh, interestingly, we found that verbal directions and people they met on their way were more important in uh, navigation and um, and leading them. So 53% said that they used verbal directions, 50% answered that someone was leading them. So yeah, this suggests then that the more important form of navigation was the other refugees along the journey, guiding them and leading them. When it comes to travel companions, we saw that the majority traveled either with family or uh, <coughs> relatives. Um, children, partner, and siblings, and uh, in the survey, multiple answers were possible. Uh, we saw also that some traveled with friends and uh, some traveled with people from their neighborhood or village. Uh, very few traveled alone, only 4%, um, which suggests that, um, or might suggest that traveling in larger groups uh, are the safer and more common choice for these refugees. Uh, now we'll look at information and assistance. 54% uh, responded that they received information about safety from people they met on the journey. And 42% reported that they got this information from other refugees on the move. 
again highlighting the importance of uh, the other refugees en route. 62% uh, answered that they did not receive help at all to travel, and 21% uh, said that they got some sort of help or assistance from the UNHCR or the International Organization for Migration. And also 20% received help from family or friends. We traveled with people we met on the road who were migrating as refugees. We were rather many, actually all the people in Torea mobilized ourselves and moved together. So these are from the open-ended questions illustrating what I just said, that people often traveled in larger groups. Uh, looking at mode of transportation, we saw that for the most part people traveled by foot, but often in combination with some sort of vehicle, for example a bus or car truck. And we also saw on the open-ended questions that uh, a lot of the refugees were picked up at the border of Uganda and South Sudan. So that's where they uh, were picked up by a truck, for example. We traveled by foot from Peri to Magiri. From Magiri, I was helped by a driver, and I was taken to Duba. My brother gave me money for transport to Nimula. From Nimula to Elegu, I was traveling by foot. I was very tired when I was coming to Uganda. So this is from a quote, a person describing their, their route and how they both traveled by foot, also got help from family, family um, and also uh, used a vehicle. Now we will look more at experiences of violence and conflict during their migration or refugee journeys. And uh, opening with a quote here. We were very many because many people were leaving. We even got an ambush on the way. There was a fighting on the road and the soldiers were, were still hiding. There was a woman with her husband who were traveling. When they reached where the soldiers were, the woman was shot dead. And we found the dead body on the road. We just continued. So what we saw in the, our study is that a lot of the refugee, refugees used uh, what they called bush roads or smaller roads, kind of to um, navigate through the landscape and and avoiding certain areas of conflict. We were fearing on the route because the government soldiers were very tough on the civilians. When they see the civilians, they shoot them. This makes the civilians travel through the bush. So these experiences with or fear of violence um, seems to be important in how they physically travel through the landscape and, and the use of these smaller bush roads to avoid conflict areas. Now Andreas will talk more about this. <clears throat> so uh, we started looking into the survey to see if... Uh, uh, these quotes were kind of representative of the experiences that people had. And most of the 1,008 respondents that we interviewed uh, had some experience with violence or armed conflict during their journey from South Sudan to Uganda. And this varies a lot uh, from direct to indirect uh, experiences uh, and also proximate and distance experiences. So I'll try to, to dig in a bit more into what types of experiences people had. So if you look at the, the overall sample, we saw that 61% of our res, uh, respondents uh, said that uh, conflict impacted their journey uh, to a large extent. 21% uh, to some extent and 18% only on not much at all. <coughs> so we started looking into uh, what types of experiences people had during their journeys. And 
the, the most common uh, response was seeing armed soldiers, hearing rumors about nearby conflict, or seeing or hearing gunfire or explosions. Somewhat less people experienced being robbed, seeing someone or someone they knew were was killed, paying bribes or injuries by uh, armed armed fighting. So we started looking into how we can explain uh, different factors or uh, characteristics with the journeys. So from the routes that I showed you earlier, we could extract some important information on the length of the journeys people had, the complexity, how many places they visited, and also the travel time we could extract from the um, from the survey. So in this, what this shows you are the results from three different uh, models that we uh, estimated using regression uh, techniques. So the uh, figure on the left shows the uh, model that uh, tries to explain variations in route length. The middle one is the complexity, meaning the number of places that people visited. And the one on the right shows uh, the travel time. So when it comes to uh, violence, we see that this was related to more complex and longer travel time for the refugees. And we also saw that receiving help increases route length and complexity, but shorten the travel time. So if we look at the middle uh, figure here, complexity, we see that gunfire and explosions were positively associated with uh, uh, more complex journeys, traveling by foot, receiving help, and changing the route along the way also led to more complex journeys. We also saw that people that had more assets, meaning they owned the radio or had assets, uh, could travel more complex routes and also travel for longer periods of time, uh, which is an interesting finding as well. But overall, uh, experiencing violence uh, was positively associated with uh, having to go through man more, more higher number of places, more complex journeys, and also traveling for longer uh, time. So that was an important finding. Here we also controlled for things like uh, age, women, education, number of children, and also we included uh, what we called uh, state fixed effects. So that means that we only compare people from the same uh, origin states. And we also control for the distance from their origin location to the Rhino camp. Okay, and then uh, I'll give the floor to Katrina to talk about the conclusions. Thank you. So we have, as you can see, a lot of interesting findings. Uh, but what we figured to highlight as uh, the three con large conclusions that we have is first that we see that the refugees' journeys are shaped by a highly complex mix of factors, so including violent conflict, these interpersonal connections that Mariana talked a bit about, the refugees traveling together, their networks, safety information on the way, and transport means. These was the key factors playing an impact on the, uh, on the uh, experiences during the journey. And we also saw that the routes often intersected at key locations or nodes, as Andreas talked about. For instance, very many traveled and passed by Yuba, the capital. Uh, also, in terms of violence and conflict, these are, not surprisingly, the, the factors that are primarily affecting the, the, the refugees' choices and their trajectories, as we see it, uh, both impacting the, the length, complexity, and duration. In addition, we saw that uh, exposure to, to violence, so uh, experiencing more closer to 
oneself, uh, altered the refugees' routes, and also increased this complexity, while traveling by foot was associated with higher risks. So these are the main conclusions, but of course there is a lot more in the paper. But in addition to these uh, 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 core findings, we would say that the study also added or raises two important uh, uh, questions. One is in terms of how do we understand these kinds of journeys? And what we've done in this paper or tried to do is to use the conceptualization that's called migration infrastructures, which is most commonly used in terms of not forced migration journeys, and try to understand the different factors shaping and inf uh, interacting with the agencies of the refugees during their refugee journeys. So by this we hope to, to push a bit the agenda on how to understand these kind of different factors and how structural factors and agency interplay with each other during refugees, so forced migrants' journeys too. And we also see that, of course, as Andreas mentioned, there's a lot of conflict and violence affecting the refugees on the way. Uh, people are highly vulnerable, but also there are some key elements that might help them on the way or they can help themselves through Uh, uh, traveling through networks and this uh, information sharing, local engagement. Uh, so we have this question as what are the practical impl implications for humanitarian responses? And to this we are not quite sure, um, but uh, we think that there is something in how to, how to support existing networks, uh, how to support existing ways of, of telling each other where to go, how to travel together, Uh, maybe something about modes of transport, what kind of humanitarian responses can be given during the migration, so within South Sudan. So we also hope to hear some reflections from the panel later on today on this. So, thank you. Thanks very much, Katrina, <coughs> um, Mariana and Andreas. I'd also just like to mention that the project that we're presenting this from is led by Andreas. It's also funded by the Research Council of Norway. And if you're interested, do look up the, the page. And I should probably also mention that Andreas is working here at Preo, but also at the University of Oslo. And Katrine is working at Christian Nikkelsen's Institute in Bergen, but also affiliated at Preo. Whereas Marianne is a full-time research assistant here at Preo. Um, before I pass the floor to our next speaker, I'd also just like to make a note that we're happy to ask, uh, answer questions about in, in the session afterwards, if you like. This research would not have been possible if we weren't working with local colleagues in Uganda. Uh, as you know, we're now in 2023, and the project was running since 2020. There was a pandemic somewhere in between. So this is something we often maybe don't discuss so much, but it didn't exactly go to plan. However, we're really impressed with what we have been able to do, and it's been very much... Thanks to great collaboration with colleagues at Makerere University and also other institutes in Kampala. Uh, and I think most importantly, actually working with South Sudanese refugees in these settlements who were working with us as enumerators and survey team leads, and then later transcribing the open-ended answers, etc. But that's kind of a small bullet point in the methods section that we hardly mention, but it is actually quite core to, to being able to do in this kind of research. So either in the Q&A later or in the coffee afterwards, I think we'll be happy to share any reflections on those things as well. With that, I would like to welcome to the floor Sarah Kasamala Mwanda, and she's an associate professor at the Western, Western Norway University of Applied Sciences. And she's actually working at a department which has a very cool name, the Department of Welfare and Participation. 
Uh, and Sarah works on many different things, which she'll be telling us about, but among them are displacement, migration, uh, and inequality. And we're very, very happy to have you here. Sarah. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's a great honor to stand before you today just to present my reflections on the theme that has been presented by Catherine, uh, Andreas, and Marianne. And Delta, uh, thanks for the introduction. I really like that uh, name of our department. It's about welfare and participation. And these are themes that are so close to my heart. I hope you can hear me. Okay. Yes. So I'm doing some research. I've worked in this region. I did my PhD there, uh, researching on recovery from internal displacement uh, in northern Uganda. And it was also part of my research work in Sri Lanka. And uh, I've been teaching on the theme of migration and uh, development. Uh, I continue doing so, but uh, now I'm into refugee welfare. It's a theme that uh, I'm working with closely. We have a project on food security in refugee hosting uh, context. Uh, I'm leading that project and it will be in northern Uganda. The cases are northern Uganda and Tanzania. So that's briefly what I'm doing. So for me, the most interesting is to try and provide some commentary on this topic today. And uh, I'll give uh, more of broad perspectives uh, related to what does international research say about this theme. And also reflect a bit on the South Sudan or the Ugandan context. So the topic here is uh, refugee journey infrastructures. And as we can see, this is a representation of the journeys across the Mediterranean. And we see so much of the infrastructure, life jackets, the dinghies, all these are part of infrastructure, according to my definition. But seeing this open sea ahead of you, it just shows that risk, violence, conflict, exploitation, abuse are constitutive elements of uh, the refugee journeys. I'll just start with that. So Uganda is home to 1.5 million refugees. And uh, this map just shows you the settlements. And uh, the Rhino settlement, you can also see it with over 140 refugees today. And Uganda is considered a hotspot for refugees. Uh, not a very fancy name, but uh, it has been home to many refugees. But also Uganda is a producer of refugees. So just to give you Sudan, Congo, that's where most of the refugees come from. And then you have also Rwanda down there, where some refugees have come from in the previous years. So just to look at uh, a brief history, this is a snapshot of what uh, I can present because so much has happened after 1994. But it started in the 1914. That's where the boundaries between Uganda and Sudan were drawn. And since then, this region has experienced conflict. I'll not go into the details of that, but it's important to capture the colonial history 
and how it has shaped conflict in the region. And uh, after 2016, I think uh, most of the refugees you've worked with are some of those who came in 2016 when there was a new bout of conflict after the independence of South Sudan. So I've already mentioned that Uganda is a refugee-hosting country. Yes, uh, it's it has received many refugees, but again, it has also displaced refugees. And this explains the relationship between Uganda and South Sudan. We have received refugees from uh, South Sudan, and they have received refugees from uh, Uganda. So every change of regime has led to a kind of displacement. So this is the history of Uganda. And Uganda itself, there has been internal displacement. Uh, over two million people were displaced during the Lord's Resistance Army and the conflict with the current government. So what the journeys look like uh, from my experience is that uh, people have been displaced multiple times. So we have protracted displacement. So we have children born in displacement. And this also defines how people move between these two countries. So just to reflect it broadly on what journeys of migrants or refugees look like, uh, there's one of senior scholar Van here. This is from Sri Lanka. He was trying to demonstrate how refugees move from the time they are displaced from that yellow cycle and where they go, either the countries of first asylum or even when they settle in uh, the affluent countries. But he highlights the role of people, money, information, and ideas in these journeys. And what I like about this image is that it shows the back and forth movements. So I'll come to this shortly, but the back and forth uh, movements in the refugee journeys. So there are many factors that I will not go into, but the migration routes, the, the existing migration routes and networks are very important in determining refugee journeys. And that's the relationship between Southern Sudan and Uganda. And then also the political and economic relations, uh, different forms of relationship between Uganda and South Sudan, all which have led to displacement at some point. But the immigration policies are also a form of infrastructure. Uganda has a long history of hosting refugees, and that's why it has one of the most progressive policies in Africa, at least. So that history has been built over uh, the kind of conflict and the displacement that has happened in Uganda and around the region. So it's more of uh, the diverse reasons or the patterns, varied patterns of migration. And uh, I haven't had uh, the team talking about international inter internal migration, also the forced and voluntary migration because these two things are very important to understand. When we talk about refugees planning their journeys, but also understanding that they have agency and also understanding the context from which they are departing from, what choices do they have apart from leaving? 
So the social net works approach uh, is also a very important theory in contributing to our understanding of the resilience of migration plus the path dependency. Oh, I'm still in time. Thank you. So what I can say is uh, that uh, refugee journeys are very, they are multiple, complex and fragmented. People don't de depart and arrive, and it's not an event. Some journeys have been documented to be over two years, especially around the Mediterranean. When they are deported, they go back and continue. They re-strategize, how do we get, how do we make it next time? And people don't know the futures ahead of them, but they are not hindered by that. They have a greater hope that it will be well where they are going. Yeah, and also I just wanted to have a short comment on uh, the context of departure and uh, aspirations. They form a very constitutive element on the, the decisions refugees make when they are moving. So that's an element maybe I wanted to add to what has been said here today. So I will not go so much into detail. Maybe we can have this as uh, a discussion. But just for our own reflection, this is the infrastructure around refugee journeys. And maybe it's best we protect people and not borders. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah, for these reflections and, and comments. If you have thoughts and questions and comments along the way for any of the speakers, please, ta please do take a note of them. We will open the floor later on. But before we do that, I'd like to invite our next speaker. Uh, that's Emmanuel Viga. He's a doctoral researcher at uh, MTNU. Uh, and he is working in the Department of Geography, where he is doing um, his PhD research as part of another Research Council Norway-funded project. Aid account, um, which is also led actually from Prio by my colleague Cindy Horst here. And Emmanuel has been doing absolutely fascinating research among South Sudanese refugees as well. So we're also very, very happy that you're here, Emmanuel. And with that, the floor is yours. Yeah. <coughs> Thank you very much for the invitation, Andrea and the team, for the uh, fascinating findings from the field. And thanks, Mata, and my teammates from Area Count. I'm very grateful to present some of my findings here. But first, before I, I go to my findings, I just want to say something briefly about me and why migration and why I'm doing migration. Um, Sarah has just made a mention, and those of Andrea and so on have also made the same um, hint on it. South Sudan and Uganda have been having this exchange of refugees in and out, and I'm part of that uh, unfortunate happening in 1980. My family went to South Sudan, so I had the greater part of my childhood in South Sudan from 1980 to 1988. We were in the refugee settlement in Juba. So we came back in 1989 when the Garang was started. So I've had this personal experience and basis of a refugee. And when we came back to Uganda, much of the discussions that you have, I quite identify with them a lot. Now, this background has, over the years, shaped my approach to research and my understanding of refugees and so on. For, for masters, I came to NTNU, I did my masters, and specifically I targeted IDPs, internal displaced persons in northern Uganda, and I did some ethnographic work there. 
for the PhD now when aid account project came into and uh, the project was advertised for a PhD opposition, I thought this was a good opportunity for me to further my research on refugees and try to contribute to refugee livelihoods and well-being based on also my experiences. So that's a brief context and um, I quite identify quite a lot with the a lot of the findings and I might be a little bit passionate when I'm going to talk about the South Sudanese and Uganda purely because of my background. Now the context, I exp uh, my research for the last three years has been looking specifically on civic humanitarianism and relational aid among South Sudanese refugees in Uganda. The context I picked were two. That is Bidibidi refugee settlement. Bidibidi in 2016 was one of the largest settlements globally. But also more importantly, I explored urban refugee neighborhoods because in most times we talk about refugees in the settlements, but then less is talked about uh, urban refugees. So I explored the two contexts, urban refugees and uh, the settlements. My project falls under the wider aid account team and aid account general ones look at how accountability is understood in relational aid. But for these discussions that we have on refugee journeys, I will specifically try to relate my findings to the first objective, who are civic humanitarian actors and how do they operate. So and then after this, I will, I will try to bring forward what my findings are about. Specifically, um, when you talk about refugees and so on, in most cases, we try to look at uh, humanitarian aid, humanitarian assistance that comes from the mainstream. But Below the mainstream or besides mainstream, you have quite a lot of actors, actors from within and actors from below that uh, also provide assistance. And the, these actors are what I explore most. And I refer to them as civic humanitarian actors or relational actors. And also more importantly, the collective activities. I will try to relate this, how the, the influence of refugee migration. So to me, the major objectives for, for the research were who are civic humanitarian actors and how do they influence refugee journeys? And specifically, the approach I took was exploring the narratives of refugee journeys from South Sudan up to Uganda, and then within Uganda also, as well as the stepwise migrations that they continue to engage in. So in identifying civic humanitarian actors, I found that there are quite a lot of them, a lot of you have written on scholarship on refugees and also civic actors. There are quite a lot of them. I've borrowed quite a lot of these discussions, but also came up with these classifications um, based on a lot of other readings. I, I grouped actors into associations and organizations. You could talk about refugee-led organizations, CBOs, and so on, but also, more importantly, kinship and social networks that you talked about. But also in the urban environments, you have groups that are prayer groups, you have business groups, small selling groups, but importantly, host communities and the community leaders. All these actors have uh, a role to play in refugee journeys. They influence how refugees move from where to where, whether in provision of information and so on. So to me, these actors provide quite a lot of assistances, and these assistances enhance refugee journeys. They enhance refugee journeys through providing vital information during journeys, whether you're talking about uh, refugee-led organizations or family networks, that you, you made a mention of, or you're talking about prayer groups, they will direct refugees on where to go. Also, child care and uh, extended family networks is an important thing. A lot of my respondents and interviewees had children that they, they took care of. And then you have providing shelter en route, also in the settlements. And um, 
also during funerals and so on, and many other collective activities, and this such as co providing communi <coughs> communal labor or providing rotational labor practices or maybe property recovery. These uh, forms of assistance became very, become very, very important if you are going to explore refugee journeys, where they are going to move, which networks they are going to go to. I think it is these forms of assistances that are provided by civic and relational actors that direct the course and movement of, of the refugees. And then how do these assistances, to me in this, how do these assistances and actors relate with the wider discussions that you have on the refugee journeys? Uh, I just got this snapshot and then from this I will end my discussion after this. To me this was one of the uh, core things that I thought I would carry here. At the height of the civil war in 2016 and during the disarray, my neighbor and the tenant, who was a Ugandan, uh, took care and moved with my children to Palorinya. That Palorinya is in Gulu, uh, I mean in um, uh, Moyo. And I only united with my children with support from UNSCRA, OPM, through the contact tracing procedures. This um, court, to me, illustrates the real risk of how refugees move when you're in a disarray, who helps you, how, how is your movement defined, and how do you even unite with people. So you have quite a lot of actors that we could actually look at this small narrative. Now, this was um, a lady who, who spoke about her predicament during the disarray, but then you could see a Ugandan who was her tenant was the one who took care of her children. And then after that, when she, they came back to Uganda, this was in Kampala, after many months, she had to do contact tracing through OPM and so on, and then eventually she had to find her children from, from the settlement. This illustrates the complexity and, uh, and the actors that engaged in refugee journeys that we should actually then maybe look at beyond the OPM, beyond uh, UNSCR and so on. There are quite a lot of these many civic actors that define refugee movements. Okay. Thank you very much. So this, I have one more slide, which I'm, co I'm concluding, yeah. So what do these actors then really mean? So during journeys, numerous actors come into the aid of refugees. This could be families, this could be friends, diaspora communities. I'm very grateful you made a mention of them. But also these actors provide essential pathways for refugee migratory journeys. They provide food, they provide contacts, they provide networks. This, in the settlements, these actors support and supplement refugee livelihoods and that becomes also an important incentive for other refugees to continue to come. But broadly, to me, I think it's very important to examine civic and relational actors in refugee journeys, especially when we are discussing topics related to in-betweenness, the movement of refugees, and the in-between what happens, barriers and constraints to refugee movements and journeys that you have made a mention of and your research has showed. Also, the layered uh, different migratory journeys and waiting times. These topics can be explored through looking at who are the actors and how do these actors direct refugee journeys and so on. I think that is what I wanted to briefly contribute. And I'm very grateful to have Sarah already talked about the complexity of Uganda and the favorability of Uganda for South Sudanese refugees. But also more importantly, when you're looking at South Sudanese refugees, you look at the cross-border movements that Uganda and uh, South Sudan have been having over the years since 1956 up to date. The porousness of the border defines where South Sudanese move and how they move. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. And if you're interested in Emmanuel's work, I'd really encourage you to 
look it up. There are some very exciting papers that I think mainly are forthcoming, but probably quite soon. So keep a, keep a lookout for Emmanuel's work. We've been talking now a little bit about humanitarianism, and we've been talking about aid, and we've been talking about different actors, uh, a lot about family, friends, and networks. But there are, of course, also humanitarian actors in the more organized sense there. And we thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit from that perspective as well. So I'd like now to invite Tarle Hungnes, who's the International Director of Caritas Norway, to come and share some reflections from their work actually in the BDBD refugee settlements in Uganda. Tarle. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you so much for sharing this very interesting and relevant research. I think this also enriches the understanding of the situation for us as... Oops. Uh, oh. This also enriches um, the um, understanding uh, that we have as uh, humanitarian practitioners. Um, so thank you so much for that important contribution. Um, as um, Marta said, I will share a little bit from uh, the Caritas work in BDBD uh, refugee settlement, um, the settlement which also Emmanuel mentioned. Um, uh, th this is the neighboring uh, settlement of the Rhino refugee uh, settlement. Uh, and uh, the work that Caritas Norway do there, we do in partnership with Caritas Uganda, uh, which is the implementing partner. Um, since we are practitioners, I will start with a story. Clara, uh, young mother, South Sudanese refugee to Uganda. She knows more than any young mother should do about violence, war, abduction, poverty and hunger. She prefers to talk about future, which she now believes in. Uh, in this Caritas project, she received training in soap making, simple bookkeeping and marketing. And together with the rest of the women's group, she does now earn some few money, uh, which they then can reinvest. Uh, their kids eat enough. They are healthy. They go to good schools. Um, Clara has even done something she had never <laughs> done before. She has bought something for herself. She has bought a hat. I am a queen now, she states. Uh, and um, I think this is her sentiment. And she will next month in December travel to Geneva uh, to advocate for uh, refugee rights in uh, the Global Refugee Forum there. Clara's refugee journey uh, is a journey to empowerment and dignity and illustrates the three main points I want to make here. But for, before I go um, to them, just brief context. Um, you see here the, uh, where the BDBD camp is located, just um, with the border to South Sudan. Um, and uh, Caritas intervention is in zone two and five uh, of the uh, of the uh, BDB refugee settlements and cover um, almost 23 percent of the total uh, refugee population of the camp. So it's a relatively big uh, humanitarian intervention. Um, 
My three points are um, first on the political situation, which also uh, Sara mentioned, um, the unique hospitality of um, Uganda refugee policy and also the 30-70 split where um, we as humanitarian uh, actors are uh, required to intervene not only among the refugees but al also in the poor um, host communities. Uh, second, um, I also want to uh, underline uh, the challenging, challenging humanitarian um, funding situation. Uh, especially now we uh, see the uh, challenging situation of World Food uh, Programme, uh, which has been uh, forced to undertake major cuts in rations. Uh, and uh, third, the importance of the um, Nexus approach, which we apply in our intervention, uh, and uh, which we then uh, use to try to increase resilience and reduce vulnerability of refugees and also host community. Uh, as I mentioned, um, this uh, the um, the very progressive uh, refugee policy of Uganda um, also has this special. Um, uh, requirement that we need also to invest in the host communities. This is some of a group from the host uh, community um, and we dialogue with them both when it comes to use of land, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, training, with the volunteers uh, as community-based farmer uh, animators and receive uh, training um, in the same way as the refugee uh, refugees uh, do. Uh, we see how this uh, integration of the poor house communities uh, decreases the tension uh, between the groups uh, and also how this 70-30 uh, divide um, uh, is a way to empower also the host communities uh, since they are of course also affected by the large influxes of refugees uh, in the struggle for uh, water, firewood, land and government services. Uh, most of the refugees in uh, BDBD uh, came in 2016, meaning they are soon entering their eighth year as refugees uh, in Uganda. So they are there with a long-term perspective and they are allowed by the Ugandan government to have that long-term perspective. Then, um, yeah, here we see a host community group um, cleaning uh, cassava for sale. Um, uh, and a chief who is negotiating land, a local chief negotiating land uh, with Caritas for use of the refugees. Um, the humanitarian gap uh, globally, it's, uh, uh, the, the humanitarian funding is moved towards the, tradi the, the traditional donor countries' uh, uh, neighboring areas, meaning the Ukraine war. Uh, and um, uh, and uh, that is, has a concrete result in BDBD camp uh, with uh, World Food Program uh, being forced to, to make major cuts. They, in 2023, World Food Program Uganda only received 47% of its requested funding, uh, forcing them to do very rapid and... and, and um, uh, and abrupt uh, cuts in, in the rations, 
uh, and uh, prioritization, uh, leaving out vulnerable refugees from their intervention. It demonstrates very well the weakness of handouts as a humanitarian strategy. Thus, uh, in Caritas, we collaborate uh, with World Food Programme and OCHA and, and others to try to address that vulnerability. Uh, and uh, the Caritas intervention in BDBD is therefore marked by um, uh, the Nexus approach, where we do both uh, agricultural uh, training. Uh, we have our, this is my colleague Suryat, she is an agronomist uh, and she uh, guides um, and trains the, uh, the refugees and host communities in, in how to apply uh, climate smart uh, agricultural techniques, uh, uh, better seeds and so forth. We also have the livelihood part, which I mentioned that Clara is uh, part of. She, they receive training in uh, yeah, vocational training uh, and, and uh, can then reinvest the money they uh, use in, um, in uh, uh, savings and loan groups and so forth. Uh, and they are uh, successful with their uh, shops. Here you can see the soap they sell uh, and, and have um, a lot of change. And uh, we did an evaluation, which I can just close with. Uh, an evaluation um, of this project uh, demonstrating that while World Food Programme food rations were the main source for 99% of our participants in 2018, this is now reduced to 47% in 2022. So this way of changing uh, the humanitarian uh, work is um, uh, creating less aid dependency, which is uh, important, of course, both for for the dignity of, of the refugees, but not, uh, but also very practically in a situation where the humanitarian funding is uh, declining. Thanks. I think I close there. Thank you very much, Tala. It's very nice to also have the sort of humanitarian perspective and also with the experiences from uh, Caritas Uganda work. And I think you just came back quite recently from there as well. So if there are questions later on, feel free to also take a hold of, of Tala. The final speaker today, last but not least, uh, is my colleague Maria Gabrielsen-Jumbert. And we've asked her to give a few comments uh, as the final speaker here, maybe to sort of lift our eyes a little bit out of the South Sudanese-Uganda context as well. I think, Sarah, you already kind of brought those thoughts to us, and they are important. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll, I think, try to reflect a little bit on refugees, borders, agency, dignity, and border control. Uh, and Maria has been working uh, on a project which is now finished on humanitarianism, borders, and the governance of mobility, focusing especially on the, on the EU, and I think is very well positioned to, to help us reflect a bit further. So with that, Maria. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Marta for this introduction and good morning everyone and also thank you so much for this invitation to to, to comment uh, uh, on this important work uh, this is um, uh, as, as you have rightly uh, introduced uh, a part of the refugee journey that we don't always hear so much about so it's it's very important that we hear how these refugees journeys are shaped uh, I will take you now to to look a bit at um, what we often hear about in the EU policy context about the border crossings into the EU. I'll also draw on some, exa some examples of other border crossings elsewhere. Um, 
but to to uh, but I wanted to just to, to to bridge this by saying that even though we hear um, a lot about the the numbers of refugees and other migrants uh, seeking to cross the borders into Europe, and in those contexts, th that, uh, this is almost presented as if happening in a vacuum, as th these are numbers of people that the EU needs to relate to, and um, there are references perhaps to mixed migration flows, etc., but, but much less understanding of, uh, of the, the broader complexity of the journeys. So this is why it's, uh, we should be very thankful for, for the results uh, or for the research that you have conducted here. Uh, looking at really how these uh, refugees are, uh, refugee journeys are shaped from from the outset. Um, I'll mention a few examples from from uh, from from different international contexts, um, but also in particular focus on the um, on the uh, border crossings into the so-called global north. So the broad definition of the global north, but in particular drawing on examples from my work on um, border control uh, in, in Europe. Um, and we have seen the, the, the risks associated with uh, the, the initial refugee journeys that you have presented to us here. And I'll talk a little bit about how these, the highly securitized borders of Europe, uh, as well as, as elsewhere, um, in further increase the already existing uh, risks. I'll say a little bit about which are the means of transportation, which landscapes and uh, a little bit about the technologies at the end, which I also think are part of this infrastructure that, uh, of the refugee journeys that uh, Sarah talked about. Um, so um, uh, you may have already heard about this idea of, of, of securitized borders or the way that, that uh, border crossings into Europe are securitized in the sense of, of uh, uh, investing quite uh, heavily in increasing border surveillance, border control mechanisms, uh, seeking to sort out between who are the um, uh, so-called legitimate refugees that might have a right to international protection and, and who, who doesn't. Um, I'll say a little bit more about these actual landscapes and, and the means of crossing them, but what uh, we, we see is the, uh, what we occasionally hear more about, sometimes less, there are still um, quite regular uh, crossings from uh, from Libya or towards Italy or uh, from other departure points towards uh, Greece, uh, but the, the even though this is more in the media attention than other refugee journeys, it's also something we hear much less about uh, in recent uh, years, uh, unless there are rather larger events such as the large shipwreck that happened in June. So, so the Mediterranean Sea is, is one part of, of these uh, um, risky journeys into Europe, that I'll say a little bit more about in a minute. Uh, but we also have other um, securitized borders and risky journeys into Europe, uh, with uh, the example of the, the borders between Belarus and Poland, and refugees and other migrants being stranded uh, in the cold, in the forests, and then uh, air border areas uh, between the two countries. Uh, and in 2015, uh, at some point, towards the end of 2015, there was, um, um, at some point, uh, more uh, refugees and other migrants seeking to cross into Norway from Russia, uh, what was uh, called sort of the, the, the Arctic route at some point. Um, uh, yeah, so seeking to enter Europe through, through the Russian-Norwegian border. 
Um, so th these are some of the concrete points that, that we, we know about. Uh, in, a, in extension, I think it's also important to, to say that the, the securitized borders of, of Europe with the borders and, or and fences and control mechanisms also, by extension, uh, create um, uh, risky journeys uh, beyond Europe. So in the Sahara, for instance, the, uh, and through different cooperation mechanisms with um, third countries, uh, and, and the EU, uh, that also creates sort of, in extension, uh, riskier journeys uh, elsewhere. Uh, just to briefly mention that we also have uh, uh, border walls and risky journeys between the, the other borders, uh, often grouped together as other borders into the global north, but they, they are not necessarily only, only those. Uh, we have the US-Mexican border and the associated uh, risky journeys there. We have also the, the risky journeys for those um, uh, seeking to reach uh, Australia by, by sea as well. And uh, they're quite um, re uh, restrictive or uh, hostile uh, responses from the uh, Australian government. Um, so, so this is what we can also group under sort of hostile landscapes of, of crossing the sea, crossing the cold or the deserts. And, but these borders are not there in a way, uh, these risky <laughs> journeys do have not been created in a vacuum. They uh, are used because uh, safer routes are, are not accessible. Safer or more regular routes are not accessible. Uh, very briefly about the, the means that are used to cross these borders, whether these are boats, uh, cars or bicycles. Briefly about cars, what I mean here is, so we, we, we know about the... the the, the dinghies used to cross the Mediterranean, and then there are humanitarian search and rescue operations or state-led uh, search and rescue um, operations, um, also with the duty to rescue at sea. But we also have um, seen in the years after, or from 2015 and after, that uh, citizens, European citizens in Greece or uh, Italy, wanting to pick up those who had uh, reached European shores, wanting to pick them up by car and take them to, to other, other, another safe place. Uh, that in itself, the fact of picking someone up with, with a car was, was uh, ruled as illegal, as, as assisting uh, irregular uh, migration or other terms used as well. So that, that was sort of criminalized, the fact of uh, picking up someone by, with a car. And the same happened elsewhere in Europe, in Norway as well. Uh, we have the examples of bicycles used to cross from Russia into Norway uh, because it's not allowed to walk by foot uh, across the Russian-Norwegian border. So uh, people would use bicycles. What I, my main point here is that the different means of crossing these borders are, are we see a pattern of these being criminalized as well, in turn increasing uh, the, the risks. I'll just uh, briefly uh, end on the fact that we, we see that also if we're talking about the infrastructures helping uh, you have talked about all the networks helping people to, to on their journeys. Uh, we have seen also that different types of technologies, from the very sort of familiar uh, uh, phone or smartphones, uh, allowing people to be in contact, plan their journeys, um, are are important to take into account. Uh, but that there, on the other end, we also have the technologies of controlling the borders, of monitoring the routes, but also of uh, seeking to verify uh, people's uh, identities through through their uh, their um, their phones or other digital uh, devices. So thank you very much for your attention, and looking forward to also hearing the the comments in your discussion. Yes.
Thank you very much, Maria. And I'd just like to straight away ask maybe Maria and uh, also um, Emmanuel and Sarah and Tale to join Andreas. Um, please take a seat. You can have, you don't really have a can, but you'll have to decide which seat to take yourself. So I won't help you with that. Uh, but I think you'll manage. And there's water there if you'd like some. Um, and while they're finding their seats, I will immediately open the floor. Typically, we often run out of time for questions. So if you have a comment or question, you can uh, raise your hand. And I think we have a colleague who will also help with the microphone. Um, so please bear with us. We'd like to record the questions as well. Uh, it's great maybe if you briefly just say who you are if you like, but you don't have to. As I mentioned, this is being recorded. So I think with that, I'm already seeing a couple of hands. So maybe let's just uh, start off with that. So there's one, I think, at the back, and then one in the front, and one here. So we'll start with those three, and I hope you guys have something to note with maybe, or remember, because we'll take some questions and then we'll do a round of responses, I think. Uh, hello, I would like to thank... It's on. It's on? Okay. Hello, um, my name is Maria. I would like to thank the panelists for their presentations. Uh, I am a researcher at the School for Advanced Studies in Social Sciences in Paris. I do uh, 19th century colonial history in Hispanic America. And my question is for the researchers that have presented their research. And it's purely methodological. Methodological. Uh, the first one is, I have to, how do you cope with dehumanization of the subject when you have such a large scale and such a large uh, object of study? You know? um, and the other one is, how do you criticize, and I, um, purely about critical thinking um, of narratives and of social constructions, because as a researcher, I am completely aware that even today academia is very much dominated by a colonial academic path, and there is a lot of uh, imposed notions that we should be critical about. So dehumanization and critical thinking on colonialism in academia. Thank you. Thanks. Then I have a question over here. Thank you. My name is Krishna from Urban Economy Forum. Thanks again for a very enlightening presentation. At times, as the French saying goes, the more it changes, more it remains the same. Yeah? The sense that the refugee migrant issues have been discussed for years now. But still, there are some good points, good sort of a, a positive and, and, and enlightening sort of details that you've presented. My, my main sort of I have three comments. One is that the, the initial presentation of the project led by Andreas talks about the um, factors that, that um, decides or to what extent you know, influences the refugee journey, to what extent the ethnic identity, similarity is a factor. Like, for example, the Acholi group in northern Uganda, same as the southern you know, Sudan, does it, is, is it a main pull factor, a push factor, in trying to find a safe place of settlement? To what extent that is something that, uh, that uh, one needs to uh, take into consideration? The other one is that, um, um, that Emmanuel uh, talked about the IDPs and refugees. Yeah? Because as we know, globally, there are more IDPs now than refugees. Whereas IDPs receive less attention, less resources, as in the case of Nigeria, where I've been working a bit on. Um, and to, to how do you say that the focus on refugees, in a way, 
uh, has not given enough focus on the question of IDPs and their settlement and their reception for the local communities. You also mentioned the urbanization. When IDPs move mostly into urban areas, does it indeed cause conflict with, with the host community? How you have examples of how it's being sort of handled, ways in which Caritas organizations like Caritas actually have been looking into the question of uh, you know, the, the host community reaction to the people that are coming in, especially in the urban areas. The, the, my sort of, um, the, the um, one, one is that um, uh, the question of successful examples of Uganda, to what extent, has encouraged countries like um, England, UK, to send refugees back to Rwanda. You know, it, it is the other side of the coin as well, you see. To what extent, in a way, what can we learn from it? How do we sort of, the European keeps quite on that kind of a thing, you know. So it's something that, uh, that, uh, that uh, we would, uh, just, just to your, your comments on that, yeah? Thanks again. And the last question is uh, that Sarah worked on both uh, Sri Lanka as well as in, um, in, uh, in Uganda, I suppose. Uh, do you see any, any similarities, even though Sri Lankan questions are most of them sort of forgotten now, uh, to what extent still there are refugees in neighboring countries, and they're mostly moved in the third country? To what extent that's an option that is being used by other countries as well? Thank you. Thanks, and we'll collect at least one more question. If I see any more hands right now, I'll also allow you to ask a question. But first, here. <laughs> you can use mic. Thank you. So thanks to all of you for uh, your comments and reflections. I had a question to Emmanuel, uh, which was, you mentioned this, uh, the importance of continuing mobilities across the border, which is true, and there has been a lot of research on this, actually. But what we try to do is to look at the initial journey. And then I was wondering if you see is what's the added benefit of trying to look at this initial journey? Does it make sense? Thanks. We'll have one fourth question and then I'll pass the floor to you guys. Thank you. Uh, my questions uh, go to my neighbor Sarah and Emmanuel. Uh, how many entry points for South Sudanese refugees to Uganda? This is question number one. Uh, number two, the question is not to you, but to the first presenters. Did soldiers follow refugees up to Uganda? Thank you. Thank you. So let's see how the panel can uh, respond to these questions. I'm sure not all of them will be fully resolved, but I think they're important questions. Um, Emmanuel, if you don't mind, I suggest we maybe start with you and then we just proceed along the line um, and pick and choose a little bit what you'd like to comment on. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the whole day, which we could have spent. <laughs> so, you know, please be selective. Emmanuel, please. Yeah, um, thank you very much for the comments. I think I will go first to Christopher about the ethnicities and the IEDPs and so on. Of course, yes, those really influence migration a lot, especially in BDBD. If you go and see the configuration of the tribes from South Sudan that are actually in Bidibidi and most of the northern uh, settlements that Uganda have, you will find that those are mostly the equatorial region tribes in South Sudan that are in, in these settlements. And most of these tribes actually identify a lot with the, the border tribes. You can find the Kakwas in Uganda and then you have the Kakwas also in the South Sudan and this kind of ethnic relationships influences that kind of migration. Of course, yes, those really, really influence a lot. And then I will come to uh, how relevant is it to look at the initial journeys and then also to look at the stepwise um, uh, movements. 
Of course, definitely forced migration at the onset of it. It's very, very important that you look at what are the drivers of forced migration and how can we work to enhance these drivers or reduce these drivers. So therefore, very, very definite that uh, initial pathways and migratory journeys must be tracked. Those have, I think, a relevance to policy nuances. But also then looking at in migration, like migration between the settlement to the urban environments, then from the urban environments to the settlements. Like in my cases that I brought forward, you have these um, cyclic movements that refugees live in the settlement, come collect food rations, and then move to the urban environments. So they, they have this kind of uh, movement in between. But also within Uganda, you find a lot of them go back to South Sudan and also come from South Sudan into Uganda. So that has a uh, relevance to deciding or trying to draw the boundary between when does a refugee cease to exist as a refugee? And how do we monitor refugee movements? How do we uh, try to look at identity? And how do this identity influence border crossings and so on? I think these are very, very important topics that we need to explore as if we are going to look at refugee journeys in totality, I would say. Yeah. And then soldiers, finally, uh, I will comment on the soldiers. Yes, in my case study, when I went for the second fieldwork, I did four fieldworks the first major phase, and then I went for the second one. In the second field phase, when I went in BDBD specifically, I reached like this, OPM is the Uganda agency that's responsible for refugee welfare. And when I introduced myself again to them and said I'm coming for the second round of the field work, they told me last week we had one of the political activists who was in BDBD who has been sought, just be aware that we have beefed up security within the settlement and we are monitoring whoever is entering, and it's good that you have brought your um, uh, uh, attention to us. So, of course, yes, this is a porous border. South Sudan keeps an eye on the, on the refugees who are in, in Uganda because the refugees in Uganda influence the political arena in South Sudan. So South Sudan always keeps an eye. But also, in the end, uh, for us, I didn't dig deeper into the political context and so on because refugees are supposed to be apolitical. I was just only informed that, okay, this is happening, then we have high level of security. Of course, yes, I would say there are these movements of South Sudan monitoring refugees in the, in the border, I mean in the settlements in Uganda. Thank you. Uh, thank you for, for the question on uh, the humanization of the subject. Um, <clears throat> so this uh, study that we did, we combined both uh, a large survey uh, with the mapping, but also individual interviews with, with all the respondents, 1,008 respondents. So the idea uh, for why we did it like this was to provide both like a general picture of the experiences that people have, but also to focus on the individual experiences. So we can both say something general about the experiences of violence uh, among the refugees, but we could also talk to individuals, right, and represent their unique journeys their unique experiences, and, uh, and so on. So I think, um, overall, we're trying to do a mixed methods study like this. We, we, we have the ability to both focus on the individual, but also on the more general picture. And I think that also promotes kind of the, the, the uniqueness with each of the individual's journeys as well. So, um, yeah. Uh, on the second question of critical thinking in academia, we can, we can talk about it after the presentation. Um, but there was a question on the ethnicity, and I, I think uh, we didn't talk a lot about that in the presentation, but that's something that came up a lot in, in, the, in the survey in general, uh, that experiences with violence 
during the journey uh, varied a lot based on uh, ethnic membership uh, and also where uh, in South Sudan they came from. So especially the difference between Nuers and, and Dinkas and so on. So, but uh, we didn't present that the descriptive here, but we can. Uh, I'm happy to show it to you <laughs> later, and we can look at it. And but uh, but it was it was a big variation both in push and pull. There was big experiences with how important conflict was uh, in terms of drivers uh, for the different ethnic groups, but also along the journey. Uh, some groups experienced much more uh, conflict uh, along the route. But uh, we, I, can, I can talk on, on the, the specifics later. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. And um, uh, just to comment on the critical reflection on narratives and also the methodology. I think what I like about the paper that was presented today is the participatory GIS. And I think it's empowering. And uh, in, uh, for myself, the most methods I use is qualitative, giving the voice to these people. Let them speak about their experiences because they are best placed to tell the world what they have experienced. Of course, there are issues of ethics, how you protect them. But uh, I think now we, are, we know better how to do it. So now it's letting them speak and also just us presenting those views. And uh, with regard to Uganda, the relation between Uganda also raises some key issues on uh, dichotomies and binaries between who are refugees and IDPs. Because these are people who have families across the borders. So it's uh, one way of looking at it that um, migration in this region, or rather mobility in this region, is coping with the political and economic hardships. So that's a bit of my view on that. And uh, when you look at uh, the question on Sri Lanka, uh, I did this uh, some years ago at the peak uh, in 2009. Uh, just after the so the tsunami, that's what that, when I did my PhD research there, and uh, it's quite interesting uh, how immense or how ethnicity affects the relations in Sri Lanka, and then also the international political system in terms of uh, asylum. I think uh, in Sri Lanka there were many opportunities for people to move to third countries. And this has been very limited for people in northern Uganda, for example. So that is what I could say on that. I missed the first question uh, you asked. Uh, entry points. Yeah, there are many entry points. That's right. Yeah, and I think uh, it's where the government has established registration centers that many refugees enter. But uh, like I've said, the mobility. Also, people are taking risky journeys because when you're a refugee in Uganda and you're being registered by the Ugandan government, if you want to cross back to Sudan, then you have to hand over the refugee ID. But these refugees don't want to take that risk, so they use more risky routes. Yeah. Thank okay, you. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much for for all, all the questions. I think I'll, I'll um, follow up on the question on, on how we relate to or uh, deal with the dehumanization uh, of those 
migrating for, for a range of different reasons and, and as well as the, our yeah, different types of critical approaches. So, so I think we all work on this at different levels in a way. We have all different entry points to, to study these both journeys that we're talking about here today and the broader topic of migration. For, for my part, what I'm studying and what I've worked on is more to, to have a, a critical take on the European policies and technologies and mechanisms um, of controlling their borders. I have worked personally less on following the actual um, refugees and other migrants cr crossing these borders, but, but to have a critical take on, on these policies that are, are also dehumanizing the individuals seeking protection for, for different reasons. So, so that's um, just to illustrate that we're, yeah, there's a range of different approaches, but that's, uh, that's been sort of, that's been my entry point in what I've uh, w worked on. And in terms of critical approaches, yes, I think that, uh, of course, the, in a way, of, of course, it is, it is needed in, in academia um, across the board. And I think that all of us uh, use our different methods, entry points uh, in critical ways, in each our ways, and always question also the terms that we use. That's also something that, that, that we all, all do in, in different ways to, to look at what, what are the concepts we are working with and uh, what, how do they enable us. Um, in our approaches, and just to take one example, um, uh, since we you have talked about the humanitarian uh, work and uh, Emmanuel also about the, the relational humanitarian uh, networks also, and that uh, one one way that I have worked on this is to also analyze how uh, the idea of humanitarian aid has been conceived in Europe because it has of it has also often been studied as something that happens elsewhere, that that's sort of from a European perspective, that Europe, humanitarian aid is sent elsewhere. But with the reception of refugees and other migrants, there's also um, a framing that we can discuss also critically. Is it really a humanitarian crisis or not when refugees and other migrants arrive in Europe? But the, the reception uh, may create new forms of suffering in, in crisis. So that's also been a way of questioning what, what do, do even humanitarianism uh, mean in the broader context. Thank you very much. It's, of course, a very important question. I think many of us would be happy to discuss it also after we, we end the seminar. I think mo more sort of on a general note, I know at Prio this is a discussion. We're nowhere close to being done. I don't think anyone is done. I also think that in, in you know seminars and events like this, you know probably we have to also try and hear what, he, what we say, all of us, in kind of uh, assuming the best somehow and trying to understand what we're trying to say because many of us are speaking English, or English also is not our first language, right? So we're all stumbling a little bit and trying to say things as best we can. But let's maybe chat afterwards. Your points are extremely important and we need to keep having these conversations, whether studying this or indeed many other topics. So thanks for raising this issue. I'll give Tala the floor to, to give a final comment as well on the, whichever question you like to, to comment on. Thank you so much uh, for the opportunity and I, I want to use it to underscore again um, uh, how thankful we are for the research you do. Uh, it is uh, very valuable for us as practitioners, uh, the concept, concepts you, you give us, the terminology uh, that you challenge us to think through. Uh, it's also um, uh, something we work on in the, as humanitarian um, uh, practitioners. Uh, I would like to underscore uh, the importance uh, of um, the importance to, to acknowledge um, the uh, civic actors, uh, the, civ the um, uh, 
Emmanuel, you had this nice uh, mm -hmm. term. Relational actors. Yeah. Sorry, relational actors. Yeah. Yes, really, uh, really good uh, term um, uh, because it underscores also uh, who are the protagonists mm. in a way <laughs> in, uh, in uh, um, helping each other in a challenging situation. Uh, and I think um, those local networks, uh, those grassroots <laughs> networks should be also at the core uh, of the um, humanitarian, uh, uh, as they should be put at the core for as and acknowledged as hum important humanitarian actors as well. Um, uh, on that uh, same note, the issue of accountability, of course, uh, goes uh, through it. Uh, and on your <laughs> important point, uh, uh, we, of course, advocate to um, increase humanitarian funding. And then we just had last week a uh, uh, discussion because we think, okay, maybe we, we should bring some Norwegian uh, youth politicians to BDBD to see the good work, for them to, 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 uh, um, to um, uh, be our, help us in, in increasing the development aid and humanitarian funding. And then we just said, okay, then we need to do that in a way which do not give them a fancy idea of uh, you know going and challenge the refugee convention uh, by uh, also then changing the Norwegian uh, yeah so then it's a little bit of a, a, a nut to crack uh, we need to to manage to do both yeah thanks thank you very much Talon I think with that kind of huge paradox of the world being a very beautiful but extremely complex place we'll wrap up the seminar so I'd like to invite you to invite you to thank the panelists with me. And thank you everyone for being here.